Section one of the Autobiography of Phineas Pett by Phineas Pett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section one. Introduction Part one. The Shipwrights. It might be supposed that so ancient a craft as that of shipbuilding would have left some trace in contemporary records of its activities, the methods of its technique, and the personalities of those engaged in it. Yet although references to ships and shipping are frequent in the records of this country from the earliest times, and although the shipwright was a distinct class of workmen at least as early as the tenth century, probably much earlier, no record of the methods in which he set about the design and construction of ships earlier than the end of the sixteenth century appears to have survived it may be presumed that those of our earlier kings who possessed a navy royal did not rely entirely on the support of the sank ports and of the merchant shipping would include among their servants some skilled man to perform the functions of a master shipwright and if not to design at any rate to look to the upkeep of the king's ships and to watch the construction in private yards of those intended for the royal service but if the clerk of the ships who first comes into notice in the reign of john had any such subordinate his existence before the end of the reign of henry v is not known to us it is however possible that on occasion this duty was performed by the king's carpenters whose principal function seems to have been to keep the woodwork of the royal castles in repair in thirteen thirty seven forty oaks required in the construction of a galley then being built at hull for edward the third under the superintendence of william de la pole a prominent merchant of that town were supplied by the prior of blythe who was directed to hand them over to william de kelm or kelm the king's carpenter the accounts for this galley have not survived and there is no means of ascertaining whether william de kelm had anything to do with the actual construction another galley and a barge were at the same time being built at lynn under thomas and william de melchiburn the accounts show that the master carpenter of the galley was john ketch who was paid at the rate of sixpence a day and had under him six carpenters at fivepence a day six clinkers at fourpence six holders at threepence and four labourers at twopence halfpenny the master carpenter of the barge was ralph at green who received the same rate of pay as ketch neither ketch nor green appear as the king's servants in fourteen twenty one the king's servant john hodgkins master carpenter of the king's ships was granted by letters patent a pension of fourpence a day because in labouring long about them he is much shaken and deteriorated in body and this grant was confirmed in december of the following year on the accession of henry the sixth in fourteen sixteen to eighteen hodgkins had built the grasdure if not the largest probably the best equipped ship yet built in england with the sale of most of the royal navy on the death of henry the fifth the need for a master carpenter of the king's ships must have passed away and no trace of any further appointment of this character has been found for over a century the construction of the regent in fourteen eighty six was entrusted by henry the seventh to the master of the ordnance and it seems probable that the design of henri grasse built in fifteen fourteen 
was the work of the clerk of the ships, Robert Brigandin, although the superintendence of her building was entrusted to William Bond, or Bound, who is described in 1519 as late clerk of the poultry, surveyor, and payer of expenses for the construction of the Henri Grasse and the three other galleys. It was not until the later years of Henry VIII's reign that steps appear to have been taken to establish in the royal service a permanent body of men skilled in the art of shipbuilding. From the earliest times of which records exist, it had been the practice to send out agents to the various ports to impress the shipwrights, caulkers, sawyers, and other workmen required for the construction and repair of ships of the Royal Navy. This system was no doubt satisfactory, while the merchant ship and the royal ship presented no essential points of difference. The latter were, indeed, often let out to hire for mercantile purposes. But when the ship of war began to carry a larger number of guns than the trading ship found necessary for her protection, a change that may be roughly dated from the end of the fifteenth century, the methods of construction began to diverge, and the old system of casual impressment must have tended to become less and less satisfactory, so that when Henry, after remodelling the material of the navy, turned, at the end of his reign, to the improvement of the administration, he no doubt saw the necessity of attracting permanently to his service men capable of directing the art of shipbuilding, as applied to ships of war, in the new channels in which it was henceforth destined to run. Up to this point the position of the shipwright, even of the master shipwright, was not an exalted one. He was classed among servants and artificers, and his pay was made the subject of legislation expressly designed to keep the wages of those classes as low as possible. In naval accounts and inventories of the reign of Henry the Seventh, fourteen eighty five to eight and fourteen ninety five to seven, Mr. Oppenheim has edited material which illustrates the various rates paid to shipwrights, and has pointed out that these rates of pay had remained practically unaltered since the days of Henry V. An Act of Parliament of 1495 laid down the following scale of payments. From Candlemas to Michaelmas Master Ship Carpenter, with charge of work and men under him, fivepence a day with meat and drink, sevenpence a day without meat and drink other ship carpenter called a hewer fourpence a day with meat and drink sixpence a day without meat and drink an able clincher threepence a day with meat and drink fivepence a day without meat and drink holder twopence a day with meat and drink fourpence a day without meat and drink master corker fourpence a day with meat and drink sixpence a day without meat and drink a mean corker threepence a day with meat and drink fivepence a day without meat and drink corker labouring by the tide for as long as he may labour above water and beneath water shall not exceed for every tide fourpence a day with meat and drink from michaelmas to candlemas master shipwright fourpence a day with meat and drink, sixpence a day without meat and drink. Hewer, threepence a day with meat and drink, fivepence a day without meat and drink. Able clincher, tuppence halfpenny a day with meat and drink, fourpence halfpenny a day without meat and drink. 
holder penny halfpenny a day with meat and drink threepence a day without meat and drink master corker threepence a day with meat and drink fivepence a day without meat and drink a mean corker tuppence halfpenny a day with meat and drink fourpence halfpenny a day without meat and drink this act was repealed in fourteen ninety six but the same scale was fixed in fifteen fourteen by an act that was not repealed until fifteen sixty two it will be observed that the highest rate under these acts is sevenpence a day although in several instances in the accounts referred to above a master shipwright was paid eightpence a day when henry the eighth instituted the practice of granting by letters patent an annuity for life to certain shipwrights performing the duty of the office known later as the master shipwright he fixed the daily rate upon the basis set forth above but it must be borne in mind that as will be shown later this did not represent the total emoluments of that official who was in effect raised both as to emoluments and status above the class in which he had formerly been placed the first of the succession of officials thus established by henry appears to have been james baker who by letters patent dated twentieth of may fifteen thirty eight was granted as from michaelmas fifteen thirty seven an annuity for life of fourpence a day the lowest rate of a master shipwright or master ship carpenter as he was alternatively called by the acts referred to the entry in the roll is of some interest unlike the later grants this grant is not based upon past services but solely upon services which are to be rendered in the future and the authority for the letters patent is not the usual writ of privy seal but the direct motion of the king per ipsum regum in december fifteen forty four new letters patent were issued in which baker is described as a shipwright and the annuity fixed at eightpence a day in january of the same year peter pett shipwright had by letters patent been granted a wage and fee of sixpence a day for life as from michaelmas fifteen forty three in consideration of his good and faithful service done and to be done from which it appears that peter pett was already in the royal service it is probable that the increase in baker's annuity was intended to mark his superior position in relation to pett the official title of master shipwright does not appear as yet in use for when baker and other shipwrights were in the next year sent by the council at the request of the lord admiral to portsmouth to examine into the decay of one of the ships there they were simply described as masters james baker and others skilful in ships in addition to baker and pett these included john smith robert holborn and richard bull on the twenty third of april fifteen forty eight these three latter under the designation of shipwrights together with richard osborne anchor smith had by bill signed by the king's majesty each of them fourpence per diem in consideration of their long and good service and that they should instruct others in their feats smith and holborn were hardly in the same category as baker and peter pett they seemed to have been skilled mechanics rather than constructors or designers and are not mentioned as having built a ship though this is perhaps due to the scantiness of the surviving records but the fact that the formality of letters patent was dispensed with in connection with this grant is significant bull was however in may fifteen fifty 
granted twelve pence a day from midsummer fifteen forty nine by letters patent in the usual terms and since peter pett was not granted this higher rate until april fifteen fifty eight in the last year of mary's reign it would seem as though bull's services were rated by edward the sixth more highly than pett's james baker does not seem to have long survived henry the eighth probably he died in fifteen forty nine and bull received baker's annuity since it is not likely that an additional annuity would be created for bull at that time and there is no mention of any reversion in bull's patent little is known of bull or of another master shipwright william steffens who is mentioned in fifteen fifty three and fifteen fifty eight the latter may have been the ancestor of the stevens who built the war spite in fifteen ninety six and contested the place of master shipwright with phineas in fifteen seventy two matthew baker son of james succeeded to bull's annuity the letters patent by which the grant was made are different in form from those above referred to for baker is first granted the office of master shipwright with all profits and emoluments pertaining to it which he is to hold in as ample a mode and form as a certain richard bull deceased or any other had held such office and then for the exercise of this office he is granted the usual annuity of twelve pence a day for life as from lady day fifteen seventy two in january fifteen eighty four baker attended personally to the exchequer and of his free will surrendered this grant in exchange for one in similar form made out to himself and john addy with reversion to the longer liver the reason why baker thus formally adopted addy as his successor do not appear however baker outlived him dying in sixteen thirteen whereas addy died in sixteen o six at deptford where he was then the master shipwright in july fifteen eighty two peter pett had appeared at the exchequer and surrendered his patent of fifteen fifty eight receiving in exchange a joint patent in similar terms for himself and his eldest son william who was already in the royal service as a shipwright with reversion to the longer liver william however died in fifteen eighty seven two years before his father so that the annuity never reverted to him in his will he describes himself as one of her majesty's master shipwrights and from the reference to him in the patent above referred to it seems probable that he held the office in fifteen eighty four in fifteen eighty seven richard chapman received a grant of the office of norpegiarius which was to be held on similar terms to those in which peter pett and matthew baker or any other held like office but the annuity granted with it was twenty pence a day and not the usual twelve pence apparently this was an additional post created especially for chapman and the twenty pence indicates the rise that had by that time taken place in the shipwright's rates of pay in july fifteen ninety joseph pett was granted twelve pence a day from midsummer presumably this was the annuity that had reverted to the exchequer on the death of his father in fifteen eighty nine his brother william who had held the reversion of it being already dead but the patent contains no reference to this the grant being based upon his good and faithful service done and to be done in building our ships unlike those issued to matthew baker and chapman this patent contains no reference to office 
and is in the earlier form phineas dates joseph's succession to his father's place as master shipwright in fifteen ninety two but this is evidently incorrect in april fifteen ninety two chapman died at deptford and william bright one of the assistant master shipwrights succeeded to his post and annuity of twenty pence in july sixteen o three edward stevens who was a private shipbuilder of some importance obtained a grant by letters patent in terms that differ from those hitherto noticed in consideration of service to be rendered in the future he is granted an office of master shipwright for life which office he is to have and exercise directly one becomes vacant in as ample a manner as matthew baker william bright and joseph pett or any other had held it together with an annuity of twenty pence a day for his services finally the patent concludes by declaring that no one else shall be admitted to such an office until after stevens has been duly appointed and installed this was the patent that gave phineas such great discouragement it is drawn up in due form and it is difficult to understand on what grounds it can legally have been set aside the patent granted to phineas in 1604 did not revoke it it was not recalled and it would appear that it was in virtue of this same patent that stevens was finally admitted as master shipwright in 1613 however phineas by the all-powerful influence of the lord high admiral managed to get it set aside in his favour on the death of his brother joseph in sixteen o five by reason the fee was mistaken wherein his majesty was abused and charged with an innovation the innovation was evidently the grant of a general reversion it would have been interesting to see the arguments laid before the council by stevens when as phineas tells us he contested the decision but unfortunately all the council registers from 1603 to 1613 perished in the fire at Whitehall in 1618. There is little wonder that Stevens, who was an older man and had, one would imagine, superior claims, bore a grudge against Pett. Stevens appears to have been appointed as master shipwright in the vacancy caused by the death of Baker in 1613. In 1614 he was master shipwright at Portsmouth, and was in sixteen twenty one serving with phineas as his fellow master shipwright at chatham where he died being succeeded by henry goddard in sixteen twenty six on the twenty sixth of april sixteen o four phineas by the assistance of the lord high admiral obtained the grant by letters patent of two chances of the reversion of an annuity of twelvepence a day either that of baker addy or that of his brother joseph his brother was the first to die and at the end of the following year phineas succeeded to the annuity that had been in the hands of the pets since fifteen forty four it is of interest to note that the patent was not of itself sufficient to enable the patentee to enter into the office of master shipwright the lord high admiral's warrant was also necessary a specimen of such a warrant has been preserved in the state papers in the case of goddard who succeeded Stevens in 1626, having held a reversion by patent since 1620, and runs as follows. Quote, Whereas we have received certain knowledge of the death of Edward Stevens, late one of His Majesty's Master Shipwrights, and the necessity and importance of His Majesty's service requireth another man to be presently entered in his place, 
and for as much as the bearer hereof henry goddard is authorized by his majesty's letters patents to execute the next place of a master shipwright that should become void by death or otherwise and in regard we have had good experience of the sufficiency and honesty of the said henry goddard and that the said place of one of his majesty's master shipwrights is granted to him by his majesty's letters patents under the great seal of england these are therefore to will and require you to cause the said henry goddard to be entered one of his majesty's master shipwrights with such allowances as is usual hereof we require you not to fail and for you so doing this shall be your warrant dated the sixteenth of september sixteen twenty six j coke to our very loving friend peter buck esquire clerk of his majesty's check at chatham or his deputy End quote. the lord high admiral's records have long since disappeared and in the state papers for the period with which we are concerned very few documents remain of the bulk of naval records that must once have existed this one is therefore of considerable interest on account of the light which it throws upon the very independent position of the lord high admiral in relation to the crown it may be doubted whether any other great officer of state was in a position of such authority that he could presume to ratify a grant that had already passed the great seal at the time when phineas became a master shipwright the ordinary wages of the post paid by the treasurer of the navy were two shillings a day to this was added the exchequer fee or annuity of twelvepence or in the case of bright twenty pence a day besides these matthew baker received a pension from the exchequer of forty pounds a year granted by writ of privy seal said to be in recompense of his service after the building of the Merona, a concession that at a later period was extended to phineas thus at that period the total yearly emoluments of matthew baker were ninety four pounds fifteen shillings of bright sixty six pounds eighteen shillings and fourpence and of phineas pett fifty four pounds fifteen shillings while the east india company paid borough their master shipwright two hundred pounds after making allowance for the difference in the value of money at the beginning of the seventeenth century and its present or rather pre-war value it is clear that these were inadequate emoluments for so important a post and it is not surprising that many of the master shipwrights kept private shipbuilding yards while all added to their income at the expense of the crown in ways that were very irregular and constantly gave rise to scandal probably none was more adept at this art than phineas himself in addition to the master shipwrights receiving an additional allowance from the exchequer under letters patent who seem to have been known as the principal master shipwrights there were others who although they were never fortunate enough to succeed to an exchequer annuity performed the duties of the post to which apparently they were admitted by warrant from the lord high admiral before their reversions under letters patent fell due in this category were william pett and addy the relationship between the royal shipwrights and the commercial shipbuilders was at all times very close not only did the former engage freely in commercial business but they joined the latter in attempting to regulate the shipbuilding industry of the country an undated petition of both classes of shipwrights for incorporation 
occurs among the state papers of 1578. No answer seems to have been given to it, but as there is a brief of patents for shipwrights dated 1592 mentioned in the calendar of Salisbury manuscript, it is clear that the proposal subsequently received consideration, although the matter did not come to fruition until thirteen years later. All record of the steps that preceded the grant of the Charter of 1605 appears to be lost. It is not probable that the aged Nottingham would have moved in the matter without strong pressure from below, and we can only surmise that the officers of the company, thereby incorporated, were the prime movers in the agitation which led to its being granted. It will be observed that the petition of 1578 is based upon the alleged need for regulating the pay, discipline, and training of the ordinary shipwrights, now increasing rapidly in number with the increase of the mercantile marine. The arguments for granting the Charter of 1605, as set forth in the preamble, are two. First, that all ships, both royal and merchant, were built neither strongly nor well. Secondly, that many of the shipwrights were not sufficiently skilful. The remedy proposed for this state of affairs was the formation of a corporation or trade union, of which all persons engaged in shipbuilding in England and Wales were to be compelled to become members. The government of the corporation, and therefore of the whole shipbuilding industry of the country, was placed in the hands of a master, four wardens, and twelve assistants. Baker, as the most noted shipbuilder of the period, was rightly made the master, and wardenships were divided between the remaining two master shipwrights and two of the most prominent private shipbuilders. The twelve assistant ships were divided as follows, Phineas Pett, Addy, and Apslin, from the Royal Dockyards, four shipbuilders of the neighbourhood of London, and one each from Woodbridge, Ipswich, Bristol, Southampton, and Yarmouth. The omission of any representative from Hull or Newcastle is noteworthy. No record remains to show what effect this charter had, probably very little, if one may judge from the absence of any record of complaints against it, although the documentary remains of the first ten years of James I's reign are so very scanty that no great reliance can be placed upon this argument. In 1612 another charter was sealed. The necessity for this was based on the ground of the insufficiency of the powers granted by the former charter, and no pains were spared to remedy this, so far as words could do so. The charter of 1605 extends over five and a half membranes of the patent roll, each membrane about thirty inches long and containing ninety lines of writing. The Charter of 1612 was a portentous document. Its enrolment extends from membrane 16-2 to membrane 37, and contains about 15,600 words. No possible loophole was left of any verbal quibble or evasion on the part of those who might desire to escape from its jurisdiction. The all and every person and persons being shipwrights or carpenters using the art or mystery of shipbuilding and making ships of the earlier charter sufficiently explicit one would have thought becomes all and every person and persons being shipwrights caulkers or ship carpenters or in any sort using exercising practising or professing the art trade skill or mystery of building making trimming dressing graving launching 
winding drawing stocking or repairing of ships carvels hoys pinnaces quayers ketches lighters boats barges wherries or any other vessel or vessels whatsoever used for navigation fishing or transportation and to this is added another long clause covering accessories made of wood from masts downward the other clauses of the earlier charter are also expanded with the like object and there are several new ones deputies were to be appointed in every convenient and needful place to see that the ordinances of the corporation were properly carried out and to collect dues members might be admitted who were not shipwrights the admission of apprentices was regulated dues were to be received on account of all ships built the secrets of the art were to be kept from foreigners power was to be given to punish those who forsook their work or became mutinous the corporation was granted the reversion of the post of surveyor of tonnage of new-built ships and was to examine each new ship to see that it was properly built with two orlops at convenient distances strong to carry ordnance aloft and allow and her foresail and half-deck close for fight provision was to be made for the poor and finally no doubt on account of the extended powers granted the ancient liberties of the sink ports was expressly reserved to them the provision for the armament of the merchant ships is of especial interest when it is remembered that in this year the royal navy reached the low water mark of neglect and inefficiency while piracy in british waters reached a high water mark of efficiency that promised the speedy extinction of the peaceful trader but if the general trend of the new charter was the enlargement and consolidation of the powers of the corporation there is one significant change that led in the opposite direction the shipwrights of england became the shipwrights of redrith in the county of surrey a step so retrograde that it is difficult to imagine what possible argument could have been adduced to justify such a change some reason no doubt there was but owing to the loss of the records it has not been possible to discover it it will be observed that although the master under the new charter was a government official the wardens reduced to three in number were all private shipbuilders and only three of the sixteen assistants were in the service of the state in the year following the grant of the enlarged charter the legal position of the corporation was further strengthened by the issue of an order in council authorizing the master and wardens to apprehend all persons using the art of shipbuilding contrary to the charter and all apprentices or journeymen departing unlawfully from their masters and by an order of the lord high admiral directing the apprehension of all persons who refused to conform to the regulations and their imprisonment until they complied they being chiefly poor men and unable to pay a fine the fact that it was necessary to recapitulate two of the penal clauses of the charter throws light on the uncertain scope possibly the illegality of the powers intended to be conferred by it the active life of the corporation was one long struggle to enforce its powers and secure its rights not only against private individuals or rival bodies but even against the officers of the crown who might well have been expected to respect the provisions of its charter for the resistance to the corporation did not come from poor men alone the other associated bodies of shipwrights that were in being resented interference in their own localities 
The most important of these was the London Civic Company, known as the Company or Brotherhood of Free Shipwrights of London, which had been in existence as a tradecraft or guild from an early date. It is mentioned among the civic companies in 1428, and was in 1456 erected into a fraternity in the worship of St. Simon and St. Jude, and in 1483 regulations were made by it relating to apprenticeship and use of good material and workmanship. This company held a very obscure position among the minor companies of the city, and during the period in which its activities concern us, it seems to have been in a very low financial condition. This, however, did not deter it from contesting the jurisdiction of the corporation, or foreign shipwrights, as it termed them, despite the fact that, owing to the growth of London, it had itself long left the boundaries of the city's liberties, and now had its headquarters near Ratcliffe Cross and the city not unnaturally jealous of its own special privileges supported the opposition at first the efforts of the free shipwrights of the city to dispute the authority of the corporation were unsuccessful an attempt made in sixteen thirty two ended in the submission of the two citizens who had been put up to contest the matter and their promise to be obedient to the shipwrights of rotherhithe saving the freedom of the city of london a submission brought about by the fact that they were members of both companies, although they had endeavoured to deny that they were members of the incorporated company of Rotherhithe. A further attempt in 1637, however, by two other free shipwrights, backed again by the city corporation, was more successful. The case was referred to Sir Henry Martin, the judge of the Admiralty, who reported to the admiralty that these london shipwrights being supported by the countenance of the city will by no means agree to come under the king's charter and government and to that purpose are resolved to oppose themselves by further proceeding at law the case was referred back to him by the admiralty with the remark that you have long been acquainted with the said business and know of what importance it is to have the shipwrights kept under government which was the ground of the grant made to the company at Rotherhithe. Martin finally advised the Admiralty not to grant their request, it being a business so much importing the general good of the kingdom that all shipwrights should live under a uniform government, as now regulated by the King's Charter, and the two recalcitrants were committed to the Marshalsea, where they made their submission. Nevertheless, in October 1638, the matter was again brought up, coming before the newly appointed Lord High Admiral, upon a petition from the City Company, and by an order in Council of March 1639, that company was exempted from the jurisdiction of the new corporation of the suburbs, although, in view of the fact that the said corporation of shipwrights is of so great importance for the defence of the kingdom, and is dispersed not in the suburbs only, but over the whole kingdom of England, it was declared that this exception ought to be no encouragement to any other society or trade or particular persons to withdraw their obedience to the said new corporation or to make suit for the like exemption which in no sort will be granted the city had won fine words whether in a royal charter or an order in council were of little use without the consistent support of the authorities and this the unfortunate corporation never received the attempt of the ipswich shipwrights in sixteen twenty one to secure its dissolution failed 
but upon the motion of their member against the patent of the ship carpenters who impose exceedingly upon builders of ships the house of commons ordered that the corporation should not demand or receive any more money by virtue of their patent until it had been brought to the committee of grievances and further order had been taken therein by the house less drastic attacks on the privileges of the company frequently succeeded the exemption from land service was ignored by the earl marshal and the lord admiral in sixteen twenty eight in sixteen thirty one the king's bench indirectly curtailed its powers by prohibiting the lord high admiral from proceeding in matters relating to freight wages and the building of ships and two years later prohibited the company from using its powers of arresting ships thereby preventing the company from getting their suits decided in a speedy way in the court of admiralty and compelling them to contend with the master who proving poor and litigious all that the company can get after long suit is but the imprisonment of his body the east country merchants also opposed its trading privileges and in sixteen thirty four the company found it necessary to appeal to the admiralty for assistance in carrying out its powers in regard to the search and survey of ships and the regulation of apprentices in sixteen thirty five when peter pett was master the difficulties in collecting the dues of the shipwrights and the tonnage and poundage granted for the support of the corporation and its poor became more acute than ever after much argument and reference to sir henry martin the master wardens and assistants were told in sixteen thirty eight to cause their charters to be published and put in execution while the vice-admirals mayors and other officers were charged to assist them in sixteen forty one the right of freedom from impressment and from attendance on juries was again in question and although the decision of the lord admiral was then favourable the troubles of the company still continued for in january sixteen forty two they were petitioning the commons for relief in march sixteen forty five the ordinance to protect the shipwrights from impressment for land service on account of the importance of their trade and the decrease of qualified workmen was presented to the lords by warwick the lord high admiral and was approved by them and passed on to the commons for concurrence but it does not appear to have been read in august of the following year warwick again reported from the committee of the admiralty to the lords a report and ordinance concerning the better building of ships and granting privileges to the shipwrights and caulkers to be freed from land service elsewhere described as an ordinance for the better regulation of the mystery and corporation of shipwrights this was agreed to and sent to the commons who read it a first time and ordered it to be read a second time on thursday next come seven night and then dropped it in the meantime the clerk and other officials of the company whose pay was much in arrear were petitioning the house to take such action with the company as would force it to meet their claims while the master and wardens were complaining of individual refusals to pay assessments due to the company this state of affairs was still in evidence in sixteen forty eight when edward keeling the clerk and the existing and late beadles of the company petitioned the lords for relief and asked that the public instruments entrusted to keeling may be disposed of and he be indemnified for them the statement of the wardens annexed thereto explains the situation as follows 
the wardens had quote, consented to pay the established duties of the corporation as directed by order of the house but peter pett and other principal members and great dealers in that mystery withhold and refuse to pay the duties for support of the corporation and so the wardens have not the means to pay the salaries of their officers or their house rent to relieve the poor to make their due surveys upon ships or to pursue an ordinance for settlement of their government which passed the house of peers eighteen months ago and now remains in the house of commons end quote. in june sixteen fifty the difficulties of the company were evidently still unrelieved for a petition from them together with their charter was referred by the council of state to the committee of the admiralty who were to advise with the admiralty judges on the matter the result of this does not appear but it seems probable that the corporation shortly after ceased to exercise its functions for a petition to the navy commissioners in sixteen seventy two which shows the same old difficulties still unremedied refers to the discontinuance of the exercise of this charter in the late troublesome times during the earlier years of this activity the corporation played a part of some importance in the administration of the navy it surveyed and reported upon the workmanship and tonnage of ships built in the royal yards and gave advice concerning their defects thus acting to some extent as a check upon the master shipwrights and notices of the sale of unserviceable ships were given out at shipwrights hall as well as on the exchange in one instance it was called upon to submit a scheme for the mould of a ship like to prove swiftest of sail and every way best fashioned for a ship of war but this attempt to erect it into a board of design seems to have failed completely in sixteen eighty three the corporation attempted to set its affairs on a more satisfactory basis by obtaining a new charter surrendering the charter of sixteen twelve in october sixteen eighty four and obtaining in january sixteen eighty six a warrant from james the second to renew it with additions this was opposed by its old enemies and nothing seems to have come of it although the matter was under discussion until sixteen eighty eight and the masters of trinity house in sixteen eighty seven in a report to pepys had recommended that there should be but one company of shipwrights and that all of that trade in england should be under their rule and government the corporation appears then to have become practically extinct for in a report by the navy office in sixteen ninety on the method of measuring ships reference is made to the measurement and calculations formerly taken and made by the corporation of shipwrights when there was such a company in sixteen ninety one and seventeen o four the remnants of the corporation made a final attempt at reconstruction backed by the admiralty navy board and trinity house a petition to this end came before the house of commons in january seventeen o five and is recorded in the journal of the house in the following terms quote, a petition of the master shipwrights who signed the same in behalf of themselves and others master shipwrights of england was presented to the house and read setting forth that the petitioners predecessors were incorporated by charter in sixteen o five and were thereby empowered to rectify the disorders and abuses of the shipwrights trade and to furnish the crown and merchants with able workmen and to bind and enrol their apprentices but the breed of able workmen is almost lost 
and for want of sufficient power to execute the good intent of their charter the petitioners have not been in a regular method many years past to rectify the disorders amongst the shipwrights and to improve their trade yet a proposal of some additional heads to effect the same has been approved and reported by the commissioners of the admiralty commissioners of the navy corporation of trinity house and also his royal highness the seventh of november seventeen o four declares his opinion that it will be much for the public service to have the shipwrights incorporated by charter as desired by them but in the said proposal there are some necessary clauses which cannot be made practicable and effectual without an act of parliament and praying that leave be given to bring in a bill of regulating clauses to be inserted in a new charter for the better breeding of shipwrights and for the more firm and well building of ships and other vessels the motion to refer it to a committee was lost and thus went out the last spark of life of a corporation that had struggled in vain for a hundred years to carry out the intentions of its founders. End of section 1